Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Hello everyone, I'm Johnny, one of the leaders at Church Central South, and I'm going to be continuing our series on Who Are We?, where we look at metaphors used in the Bible for us, God's people, to try to understand a bit more what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we've seen a whole load of metaphors so far. I don't know how many you've caught already or how many you can remember, but let's let's see how I do. Uh, I know we've done salt and light. We've done yeast. We've done the church as a body. (laughs) Foreigners and strangers, I did that one last time. I think the army was in there somewhere. And today we're looking at a different uh, kind of image. Uh, The people of God as, uh, as a temple. And so just as we've done over each week, um, as we've done this series, I want to bounce the ball straight back to you in your homes as you're as you're gathering to to, uh, participate in this this meeting Um, and just ask you, well, first of all, well, what is a temple? But also, I guess more than that, if we are God's temple, then what does that mean for us? Okay, go for it. So. I'm sure you've come up with all sorts of great stuff, but I'll chip in to tell you what I've come up with on this one. What is a temple? Well, let's start very basic. Of course, a temple, uh, the, the, the common definition would be it's a place of worship, isn't it? It's a, it's a place where religious rituals like praying, offerings, worship, study, those sort of things take place. And that is true. That is what a temple would be. But when we look at temples in the Bible, that is very much a surface reading. That is the very, very beginning of what a temple is. And we have to go much, much deeper to see what this metaphor is really all about. Temples for us nowadays are kind of curios, uh, we could say. They're interesting, kind of quirky pieces of architecture. Uh, and they don't seem to serve much purpose in most people's day-to-day life. And in fact, even if you're a temple goer, uh, they would only seem relevant to you on the on the times and the days and the hours that you visit the temple would be my my guess and so basically they're a kind of unimportant if not completely irrelevant thing to most people although we know technically what they are this would not have been the case in the ancient world in the ancient near east they were vitally important not just to the very very religious but actually to everyone to all people now, all empires and all nations actually would want to have a temple. That would be a, a, a very important thing. And for those nations that did uh, get to build one, I, I stumbled upon a stat a short while ago, which I think is uh, phenomenal, uh, which is it's thought that for those who built temples, that they would spend on average on the kind of uh, building and upkeep of their temple, the same proportion of their national wealth as, the, uh, as America, the USA, spends on their national defence budget. Okay, just think about that for a second. Temples were as important to people in the ancient Near East as national defence is to America. I don't think I need to tell you that that makes these buildings very, very important. And this was certainly true of the Jewish temple, the temple of the people of God in the Old Testament. King David was one of the greatest uh, kings, probably the greatest king that Israel ever had. And God gave gave him great success. And so as a successful king, what do you think? Is he sitting there knowing the favour of God? I don't know, won battles against his enemies, acquired new land, like prosperity for his nation. He's sitting there with all this stuff going on. What would he dream of? What would he want to do next? What would be the thing he's thinking? This is the most important thing. Now I've got uh, the ways cleared by God to, to do these sort of things. Well, actually, what did he dream of? He dreamt of building a temple. Psalm 27 verse 4 most likely is a picture into David's prayerful daydreaming on this topic. He writes this. 
The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. But sadly for King David, he never got to do this stuff. He, he never got to build a temple. But as he died, he left plans for his dream to his son Solomon. And his son did get to build that temple. Now, you can read the account of Solomon's life uh, in the Old Testament too, particularly in two chronicles. And um, Solomon is a massively important figure in Jewish history too. And he gets nine chapters in the book of two chronicles given to his life. And so you might expect, well, what we're going to see there, we're going to see uh, accounts of battles, uh, maybe kind of palace intrigue or very special encounters with God. We'll see those things. Well, yeah, we, we get a little bit of that. I mean, three chapters at most. What's most of the space given up to? Well, out of the nine chapters given to, uh, to Solomon's life in two chronicles, six of those chapters are about just one thing. And that's about Solomon building the temple. Can you see the point? For the, for the kings of the Old Testament and for the Bible writers, this temple is more than just a place of worship. This is a massive deal. And for God's people who live in a land with this building in the years after Solomon had built the temple, they were too were convinced of its importance. Psalm 84, written years after the building of Solomon's temple, it says this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. So that's pretty overblown language, isn't it? What's the psalmist talking about? Is God's dwelling place or the courts of the Lord, are those just metaphors for feeling, I don't know, somehow kind of close to God? Well, the next thing he says makes it very clear that they're much more than metaphors. This is how he goes on. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. O Lord of heaven's armies, my king and my God. Can you see the image? This psalmist is imagining a bird that literally makes its nest in the eaves of the temple. And the psalmist is really jealous of that bird. He continues. What joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. Do you see this house, this special dwelling place, these courts, these phrases used by the psalmist, they all refer to this building, to the Jewish temple. And it was clearly more than just some place of worship. So this raises the question then, the obvious question. Why this obsession with what is essentially a pile of bricks and mortar? However impressive it looked, this seems like quite a, quite a lot of uh, emphasis put on this building. Well, there have been kind of clues, I think, maybe throughout the Psalms. But to see this uh, fully, we really need to understand what temples meant to ancient people, both to the Jews, yes, but also to other nations in that part of the world at that time. You see, in a very real way, the temple for ancient people in the Near East was a vital uh, part of their whole view of reality. Let me show you what I mean. Let's imagine I was to ask you to draw a picture right now of the planet that we live on. Now, we don't have time to do that now. You can try if you want to. But I, I did. I got some artists in my home to help out. And I imagine your picture, if you did it, would look a bit like this one. 
There you go. You've got the two white bits on top, uh, polar caps. You've got the green bits, which are the countries, and the blue bits, which is the sea. I think we'd all come up probably with something similar to that. Now, let's imagine then that I asked you to do something more, to zoom out a little bit and to give a bit more kind of context in space of where we live. Well, again, I think another artist in my home uh, did this. And I wonder if our pictures would look something like this. We'd have an idea of the Earth. <laughs> the space rocket may not feature, who knows? Uh, but we'd have an idea of the sun, the planets, uh, maybe a few stars would make uh, their entrance too. Some of you might even be able to get those in the right sort of order, but we'd have the same kind of features uh, there for any of us. Now let's imagine though you asked an ancient Near Easterner to do such an exercise. Tell you what, they would come up with a very, very different picture. Now, this isn't a picture from an ancient Near Easterner, but on the screen now, I'm putting a modern artist's impression of what they might have drawn. Have a little look, see if you can work out what's going on in this picture. Now, this artist has taken descriptions uh, that we have both in the Bible and from other contemporary writings and put them in picture form. And as you'll see already, it's very, very different, isn't it? Now, let's talk, talk you through this. The first thing to know is that uh, reality for an ancient Near Easterner was split into two distinct sections. You had the heavens and you also had the earth. And the earth is where humans find themselves living. And this is the bit inside the kind of snow globe-like thing in the centre of the image. The heavens, then, is the bit outside of the dome, and that's where mysterious spiritual realities reside. Both good things, that's where, where God lives, God lives in the heavens, uh, but bad as well. Look at the snakes, or whatever you think those things are in the bo bottom corner. Those are the chaos creatures that people uh, thought of uh, in, those, in, in those days. Well, notice as well, though, in this image that the heavens and the earth are not utterly disconnected. Notice that beam of light coming from the top right down to the, uh, to the earth. There is a, an actual point where the heavens break into our experience and they meet the earth, where the spiritual world directly comes in contact with the physical world. And it's a very specific place. Have a little squint at it. See if you can notice, where is the beam hitting? Yep, you've got it. It's a temple. And pretty much every religious system would have seen their temple in this way. This is the place where God connects with the world. This is the place where heaven meets earth. So get your head around this then. For an ancient person living in the Near East uh, thousands of years ago, in their fundamental view of the world they lived in, temples were actually a dominant feature. Notice the difference with today. I mean, it's quite neat temples on our picture of the earth you'd really have to zoom in on google maps to find them wouldn't you what about in our solar system would any of you include a temple if you drew the solar system well i think like my little artist in the home you probably wouldn't bother would you um but in their view of reality no temples were there they didn't have polar ice caps or continents or the equator but they definitely had temples they were vital to their understanding of the world and their place in the world uh, and where how god fitted in with how the world worked and this is what the psalmist means when he writes of the temple as god's dwelling place it's not just symbolic language there is a sense in which the israelites believed that god was more present in the temple than he was in any other place although he made the whole earth 
So some examples of this that we see in, uh, in Jewish history and in the Old Testament too. In, in Jewish tradition, uh, the high priest would have the privilege of being the only person to enter the most special part of the temple once a year. And when he did, according to Jewish tradition, he'd have a rope attached to his leg and bells around the kind of hem of his robe. And the reason for those items would be that there was a fear, a genuine fear, that as he went into the most special part of the temple, the kind of central part, the Holy of Holies, that he might encounter the very presence of God himself. And if he did that, what might happen? Well, he might die. That's what might happen. So if they heard the bells go still, they could pull him out using the rope because the problem would be no one else is allowed in there. And if he died in there, well, it's going to get a bit smelly and be tough for the next high priest to go in, uh, among other problems. OK, there's another problem. Another example uh, we could use as well would be from the days actually before the temple was built. Um, you see, for the Jews, they associated God's presence, his real presence in its most concentrated form, not just to the temple or one room in the temple, but to a specific piece of furniture in that one room, the Ark of the Covenant. And this was built actually well before uh, the temple and it was kept in a sort of prototype temple, a prototype portable temple, actually. Um, and it was called the tabernacle or the tent of the presence or the tent of meeting. But sometimes what they do is they take the ark out of the tabernacle and take it to battle with Israel's armies in the belief that by doing so, God would actually be fighting with them. Now, on one occasion, this uh, plan backfired slightly because the baddies, the Philistines, captured the ark. You might think this is terrible. What, what's going to happen? Well, listen to what happened. I'll, I'll read it to you from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is what it says. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. <laughs> wow. So you see that phrases like God's dwelling place or where heaven touches earth, those were not just motivational catchphrases. The temple or wherever it was that God's presence dwelt at that time was a place of God's holiness, his glory and his powerful action. So this all leads to one inevitable question. Where do we find such a temple today? Well, in that regard, we do have a, a little bit of a problem. Uh, there is no Jewish temple anymore. It got destroyed. In fact, no, it didn't get destroyed. It got destroyed twice. Uh, and unless you're like Indiana Jones or a member of the Illuminati or something, it's unlikely you're ever going to get your hands on the Ark of the Covenant either. So that's out of the question. So is that it then? Is this all nice stories from the past? But unfortunately, the temple's gone and we just have to look back to those days. No, far from it. And here we come to why this talk is in our series. What is the temple today? We are. 
We who are God's people, the church of God, are God's temple. Let's spend, look at one more Bible passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. This is what Paul writes. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we are strangers and foreigners in the eyes of the world, but we're no longer strangers and foreigners as regards God's people. He goes on. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. Citizens of God's kingdom. This is sounding good, but he goes on some more. You are members of God's family, Paul writes. Members of God's family. We're not strangers. We're citizens. We're members of the family. Let's just keep getting better and better. Well, he continues. Together we are his house, God's house, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So not just a disconnected, extended family who barely speak to each other anymore. No, we're a house or we're a household. We're, we're together. We're our brothers and sisters with our heavenly father present in our lives. This is brilliant. But here we come to the bit that we've been talking about today. Paul finishes by this passage by saying this. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. I don't know the exact situation you find yourself in as you're watching this video, but I'll presume it's a bit like uh, the experience of our community group over this summer. Maybe you find yourself in a, a house in Birmingham, maybe in a living room with five or six of you, uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And maybe in the distance, you can hear the sound of screaming or hooting children. And for some of you, you're wondering is, do I need to go out now and clean up something that's been spilt or go and sort one of my kids out? Maybe that's what's happening right now. You realise that most people in your group are on holiday somewhere or other. And, and so it's kind of the normal summer lull that we always get combined with the loss of our usual meeting hall and, and being in different people's homes. And um, my guess is that whether I've got that description spot on or not, uh, where you're meeting lacks a sense of, let's say, spectacle <laughs> or a sense of occasion. Is that correct? Look around you. Am I, am I on the right sort of page? It can all seem deeply unimpressive. And you can wonder, well, what exactly is it that we're doing here? Well, do you know what we're doing here? Do you know what actually God's perspective is on these, uh, these gatherings that we're having? We're gathering as expressions of God's temple. The place where heaven touches earth. You are part of this dwelling where God lives. Remember that picture? Let's look at it again. That beam of light is landing, according to the Bible, right where you are. And actually, it's not just about your meeting. As you go from that place as members of God's household, going to work, looking after your own household, going off on holiday, whatever it might be. Now, his presence, that beam goes with you. He is able to work in you and through you in a special and unique way because you are, in a very real way, the place where heaven touches earth. So I want to apply this right now in our gatherings. We're going to do two things. We're going to worship together and we're going to pray. In a moment, we're going to be led in a song by one of our worship team as we've been each a week over the summer. And whether you sing or not, I'd love you to use these words to give your praise to the God who made you, uh, the God who saved you. And as you do it, know this. He's living with you because you're his temple. That's what we're doing when we're worshipping. He's not shouting to some distant God. No, this is where he is. He's coming down. He's filling his temple. He doesn't need a second, second ask. He doesn't need a second invite. He's there with us. That's what we're doing as we worship. Talk to him. Tell him what he means to you. Thank him. Express your love to him. Then after that, after we've worshipped, I wanted to offer him some requests. 
pray for yourself and for others in the group. Please press press pause in the video and share those ideas around so you can pray for each other. As the gathered people of God, as his temple, we want to know, well, what do you need the God who is dwelling with you right now to do for you? Are you sick? Are you struggling with bad habits that you want to kick but are finding really hard? Are you in a difficult work situation, difficult home situation? Well, when God's glory flooded the temple in the Old Testament, you know what happened? Things changed. Pray in faith that God can do just the same for you now in his temple. It's the same. Once you've done that, then pray for one other thing, if you will. Pray for each other for yourselves as you leave your gathering later on. Again, recognising, as I said a minute ago, that God's presence goes with us and you can bring his presence into other situations as a kind of temple on the move. So it's not just what God can do in you now, but also pray for what he can do through you as you go. As you bring heaven to touch earth in the situations and the circumstances that you encounter as you go from this place. Please be encouraged. You are the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of the Lord of heaven's armies. Let's call on our God together to do great things in his temple once again. Let's go for it.